0: or pull out your phones and turn to Psalm 90. That's the book of Psalms with the big letters 90 and we're going to start with a little letter one. Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or well, you brought forth the whole world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yes, the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants and your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands.
1: I think uh, Psalm 90 is one of those classic psalms isn't it? It's able to deal with things in such a succinct way. It doesn't seem very long ago that Robin and I were busy raising children. We were running them to school and ballet and swimming lessons or um, going on noisy family holidays and taking them to athletics training or soccer and footy matches and now our children are doing exactly those things themselves, and yet it doesn't seem very long ago at all that we were the ones doing those things. I remember distinctly one night, and I'll just share my heart here, I was trying to work out how many more times I might have to supervise baths for the children. and I tried to calculate how many children, how many baths, roughly what age we stop having to do that how many more years, and uh, it came to a bit of a frightening number. And yet, that is long past. It is way gone. I remember sitting one day thinking uh, I was was, um, at Little Athletics, and I was involved with timekeeping, and we were on a tiered stand, and it was the end of the 100 metre straight, and it was between races. And I remember uh, just gazing out over the grass and I was holding the white timer button that was on a lead and uh, just getting ready for the next race but just thinking this too will pass and it has long ago and now our daughter is at exactly the same oval at Riverside with her children at Little Athletics doing exactly the same things except they now have photo electronic timing and that, that role that I had is, doesn't exist anymore. Time doesn't stand still. It marches on. Yet as we see in Psalm 90, God's nature and human nature don't change at all. But before we get into this psalm, let's turn and invite the Lord into our hearts so that we would get what we need to take home from this psalm. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we have before us now a very countercultural psalm. Please grace us with your Holy Spirit so we can grasp Psalm 90 with eyes of faith and hearts that are enlightened by the knowledge of your Son, our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Teach us, we pray what we need to learn this morning. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Going by its title, A Psalm of Moses, the Man of God. Psalm 90 is likely the oldest psalm in the Bible. We know David lived many hundreds of years later, long later. So it's an intercessory prayer of Moses that has elements of a community lament. There's a there is a definite lamenting of the shortness of life that comes out quite distinctly in this psalm. We can't be certain, but Moses may have written it around the time of Deuteronomy, when Israel was on the brink of entering the Promised Land and after decades of experiencing God's amazing provision both in Egypt and then through the wandering years in the wilderness with all the constant quarrelling and rebelling that Moses had to put up with. What is clear is that time is a major theme in Psalm 90. We know that because of the words and concepts related to time that are punctuated all through the psalm. References to days, years, generations, 70 years, 80 years, 1,000 years, morning, evening, a watch in the night, a day gone by, flying away, everlasting to everlasting. Time is a huge theme in this psalm. The question is why does time figure so prominently in this psalm? Well, the answer might seem obvious because God is outside of time and we human beings are bound by time. And we're set apart from God because God is timeless and we're not. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But this psalm has a note of lament, not praise about that difference. Moses is concerned about something else to do with the passing of time that distinguishes God from man. So turn with me to the opening verses of Psalm 90, where the everlasting God is described as our home. The everlasting God is described as our home. I think I... Technology and me don't always... Could you just advance it to the first slide? Thanks. So verses 1 and 2 do sound a note of thankfulness to God for being Israel's dwelling place or refuge or home for generations. Just look at the verses. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has functioned like a home for Israel for hundreds of years in Egypt and in the wilderness. He says, Lord, you've been our dwelling place or literally our protector, our place of safety, the Net Bible describes it, throughout all generations. Now, Deuteronomy 32 describes God as shielding and caring for Israel like an an eagle hovering over its young in its nest can you picture that an eagle hovering over its young fluttering and protecting the chicks he watched over Israel even with all the complaints and all the whinging and the arguments and the rebellion when Pharaoh had, had you know he, Moses went to Pharaoh and said let my people go and when Pharaoh agreed and then changed his mind the people just turned on Moses they didn't blame Pharaoh but all along God was looking after his people he was caring for them so God put a, a, a distinguishing mark between the Israelites and the Egyptians a pillar of cloud by day and a shiny pillar of fire by night came between Pharaoh's army and the Israelites, protecting them. He was their dwelling place. Through the wilderness, he supplied oases with date palms. He supplied water out of the rock, manna from heaven, quail. He supplied their needs. He was their dwelling place. So Moses begins this Psalm acknowledging that reality And he takes it further back and he pictures the Lord giving birth to creation with a world like his baby. Think of the wording here. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In this psalm, Moses acknowledges the eternal nature of God and the essential goodness and loving kindness towards people and creatures and things that he has made. And as God's people today, we should acknowledge this awesome reality that God is such an amazing, everlasting God, from everlasting to everlasting. I don't know about you, I I find it difficult to get my head around that. That's how God's described. I think without any help from us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is an amazing statement, an amazing fact. He didn't need our help. And this God, the God of Israel, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom he made the world, as John's Gospel makes clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Israel's great I am is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the only God and Saviour of mankind. He is the eternal home of all who trust in him, our home, our everlasting dwelling place. This is awesome. And I think God is amazing and his ways are so much higher than ours and we ought to be full of joyfulness and encouragement about that. Now Psalm 90 takes a real turn and confronts us with the reality of the dark side of human life. In verses 3 to 12, we see another side of things. We've looked at God our eternal dwelling place, now we see we are not at home in this world because we die. We're not at home in this world because we die. Look at verse 3 and following. You turn people back to dust. Remember, dust you are, to dust you shall return. God made Adam Adam out of the dust of the ground and Eve from Adam's side. And he's saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death, like a flood sweeping them away. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Some versions have a sigh. This is not a very positive view of mankind, is it? very sobering one. It doesn't seem to indicate that we have a a good nature, basically. It shows God's just displeasure. Indeed, his righteous anger, where our days pass away under God's wrath. And we die because of our sin. As the book of Romans says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's our human condition. That's the reality. God is from everlasting to everlasting, but we're not. And the reason why we're not is because of sin. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He knew God had sentenced human beings to die under the curse of sin that he'd pronounced on Adam and Eve and their descendants. And he put it this way in Psalm 90. You turn people back to dust. So where we've come from is where we go back to. You say, return to dust, you mortals. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. It's like they're not fully awake. I don't know what's happening to them. You sweep them away. We're consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. All our days pass away under your wrath. Just very heavy. Very real it doesn't paint a pretty picture of human beings, does it? We know Israel had whinged and complained and argued and resisted God and his chosen leader, Israel, uh, Moses, at every turn. Not just during their wilderness wanderings, but right back in Egypt, it had just been going on. The brutal reality of the human predicament is that life on this earth is fleeting and harder than it needs to be because of our sin, because of sin. Let me try to highlight in practical terms the difference between the biblical view of mankind as sinful that Psalm 90 presents and the popular view of mankind as basically good at heart. You might have heard this week that the Australian government is considering setting up some mandatory what they call guardrails for artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is obviously hugely powerful and the potential for good or for harm is is clear. So they want to control, put in place some guardrails for the use of AI and create exist, uh, change existing laws and bring them up to date with the reality of AI and create new AI specific laws and Ed Husick, the Minister for Industry and Science, said, Australians understand the value of artificial intelligence, but they want to see the risks identified and tackled. And I say, amen, that's true. But I wonder, what, what would the difference be between the guardrails set in place by a group of people who confess the reality that all human beings are sinful by nature... And the guardrail is set in place by a group that believes that at heart all human beings are good. Just some need a bit of help. The first group would acknowledge how sin affects all of us, even the lawmakers. And they would try to take account for the inevitability that anyone is capable of breaking the law for their own desired ends even those in charge of the AI. The second group would think problems of illegal behaviour can be solved by better education or by lifting people out of poverty or by treating them for a medical disorder or by applying increasing penalties for repeated misconduct as a deterrent. Now, without being cynical, Where willful, sinful human desire is concerned, education, compassion, medicine, and the law are never enough. The human condition has been caused by rebelling against God, not by lack of education, or medicine, or compassion, or legal penalties. No amount of these things will repress covetousness, or murder, It's always been wrong to murder, but people still do it. There's penalties against it, and they still do it. Or theft, or lying, or immorality, or lack of love for God and fellow human beings. You see, the regulations we put in place cannot deal with the human heart. They can help. I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying they fall short because they don't get down into the real bedrock issue of sin in the human heart. The fact of human sin is, in fact, often poo-hooed as an outdated and unhelpful concept that needs to be abandoned because it's fundamentally wrong. You see, our view of human nature and whether or not all people are sinful at heart and accountable to God affects our whole approach to life and decision-making. It will affect our approach to raising children, if you realise that your children are afflicted with sin in their heart. It will affect our approach to prayer. You know you're prone to wander. You know you yourself aren't all you that you want to impress others to be because of sin in your heart. It will affect our approach to national security, And this is what we find in Psalm 90. Compared with God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, we are only on this earth for a moment, like a watch in the night, which is a four-hour block, or like a day that has just gone by, 24 hours. The average lifespan on this earth is 70 or 80 years, and they quickly pass away, Pass and we fly away, as verse 10 puts it. I ask you, do you really accept that you are mortal and have a use-by date? Do you ever think about the day of your death? Plan ahead for it. I'm not talking about funeral insurance or a will. Sorry to any funeral directors here. I'm talking about the fact that unless Jesus returns first, your death is as certain as tomorrow's sunrise or paying taxes or the chances of your buttered toast falling face-side down on your new carpet. It's just a reality. It will happen. It's just a matter of when. It might be sooner than you think. No amount of funeral insurance or a well-thought-out will can help you meet a holy God. Moses laments the plight of mankind. There's a deep lamenting here. It pains him to his heart that he smacked the rock twice and he isn't getting into the promised land, that he was exasperated and disobeyed God. It exasperates him to his heart that these people complained and whinged and rebelled time after time. Korah and his rebellion, his own sister Miriam, and Aaron when he was up, when they're on the mountain, and Moses is getting the tablets of stone, and Aaron led the people astray into riotous behavior. It- pained him because he knew the plague the cause of it was sin and that's why we return to dust that's why we're not at home in this world because we die he laments it so lamenting the deadening effect of sin in himself and in the people he led he appeals to the lord in verses 11 and 12 if only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days so we may gain a heart of wisdom. At this point, some of you might be thinking Steve, what you're describing sounds very Old Testament. Things are quite different since Jesus came in the New Testament. Well, are they? Not with human nature, it isn't. Both God and human nature are the same throughout the Bible and throughout history. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our human nature is like a leopard that can't change its spots. We still sin. Paul had some of the exact same issues with his churches that Moses had with Israel in the wilderness. Failure, complaints, uprisings, betrayal, bickering, whinging, immorality, heresy, unbelief, grieving the Holy Spirit. Exactly the same issues. So Moses looked beyond the human predicament to the everlasting mercy of God for a solution. His hope wasn't going to be in education. It wasn't going to be in medicine. It wasn't going to be in law. It was going to be in God. In essence... What he says is, Lord, prepare us to come home to you. Lord, prepare us to come home to you, the third point. So look at verses 13 to 17. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. He's looking to God for his solution. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we've seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children. May the favour of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses thirsts for God's compassion. He knows he will not be entering the promised land because of his sin. So he appeals to the God of compassion and hope. Instead of a resigned sense of despair at the inevitable. Oh, well, I'm not going to make it. I've blown it. What Moses didn't realise is that he would get to be with the promised Messiah in the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus. Like Moses, we need to trust God and look to him for mercy and grace and unfailing love. Like Moses we, we find mercy, grace and love in the face of Jesus Christ. Here is love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Satisfy us in the morning with your own failing love would be fulfilled on that morning in the garden when women went to the tomb to... to, uh, to uh, deal with the body of Jesus, to anoint him, and they met the risen saviour. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendour to their children would be fulfilled when a saviour was born in Israel and little children were brought to sit on Jesus' knees and crowds laid palm branches before the king, riding on a donkey shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what does it mean at the end of this psalm, establish the work of our hands? It means the works God's people do in pursuit of their calling to love and serve the Lord. It means whatever we do in faith in God's name, like loving our neighbour as ourself, at work, at school or when your car is rear-ended, patiently enduring hardship and teasing, refusing to go into payback mode or complaining mode. It means honouring our parents and raising our children to know the Lord and grow up to be honest, hard-working citizens who pay their taxes and respect authority and pray for their leaders. It means caring for orphans and widows in their difficulties doing the kind of works that please and honour Jesus Christ. It means joining with God's people and sharing Christ with others. Such things honour and bless our neighbour and please God. The works of our hands that God establishes are the things to do that we've done out of faith in Christ, out of love for him and mankind which display the fruit of his spirit and not the works of our flesh. The works of our hands that God establishes will pass muster, they'll pass scrutiny on judgment day. That cup of cold water that we give to someone in the hour of need, that going the second mile to help a friend or an enemy, giving them your coat not begrudging them your time. God is pleased with those things. God will establish the works of your hands when you live like that. The God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. The sole difference is that in the New Testament, God has supplied a perfect great high priest for us. Jesus, the Son of God, who dealt with sin by dying for it, and rising from the grave. Being holy, God will always be a consuming fire. And without Christ's death and resurrection and intercession for us, we would perish in our sins and none of us would have the works of our hands established. What we need is to live by faith in Christ, namely, To walk by faith in Jesus Christ rather than relying on ourselves and our own human ingenuity. The world says, you're going to be dead a long time, so eat, drink and be merry and make the most of life. I've got a brother that said exactly those words to me. Do what makes you happy. Don't worry about others. Only only worry about what pleases you. you. Only you can do you. So make sure you become the best you that you want to be. That's the philosophy of our age. And it's the polar opposite of what Moses meant when he said, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's the philosophy of hedonism. Eat, drink and be merry, tomorrow we're gone. There's nothing more after that, that's it. If I had my time over again... I'd make it my life mission to know God and the gospel of his son much better and much earlier in my life. To get it squared away and understand that real clear. And I'd make sure I lived by the gospel and taught it wholeheartedly to my children because I can see the powerful effects and benefits of that gospel now far more clearly. I would pray daily for God to take away the heart of stone in myself and in my children and give us a heart of flesh so that we might believe the Lord, trust in him and work uh, his works, do the things that he wants us to do. Then I would relish time with my wife and children more, not count how many more baths I had to supervise or how many times I had to read books to the children. I'd knock off time on work even if if my sermon wasn't finished and I'd say, I love you more genuinely and more often to my family and friends. And I'd be more concerned about pleasing the Lord than worried about what other people think. I'd be less concerned about upsetting people and I would share the good news of Jesus far more. I would resist the devil by confessing my sin and reminding him that I love God simply because he first loved me and gave his son to be the atoning sacrifice for my sins, something he doesn't have. I don't deserve it. But Jesus rose again for my pardon and nothing can separate me from his love. I'd resist the devil with that. So let's take stock of Psalm 90. I think Moses wrote this psalm after meditating long and hard on Genesis 3. Mankind's fall into sin and the promised redeemer from the seed of the woman. And on his own and Israel's sin while journeying in the wilderness. And on the merciful nature of God revealed to him at the burning bush and on Mount Sinai. I think all of these things came together. And as he meditated on them, it burned within his heart and he wrote Psalm 90 under the inspiration of the Spirit. So in verses 1 and 2, we saw that the everlasting God is our true home because he created us and cares for us. In verses 3 to 12, we saw that this passing world cannot be our home because God has cursed the earth due to human sin. And in verses 13 to 17, we saw the way to reckon with the fact of death is not to eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die, but to appeal to the Lord and his great compassion to save us and establish the work of our hands. This is how we are to reckon with our death. If you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, don't fear death or resent it, or try to ignore it. It's the gateway into God's awesome, holy presence. It will complete his sanctifying work in you and be your home calling. You will be at home in God, your dwelling place. The Puritans made a habit of meditating on their death in view of the gospel. Learning to rejoice in hardship, how to live by faith in Jesus Christ and long for the world to come. Imagine if we did this too. How are you reckoning with your death? Are you living in fear of it? Are you in denial of it? Living like it is far off? Are you making it your goal to please the Lord by living a life of faith in Jesus, the promised Redeemer, and his victory over sin and death. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you for this psalm being in the Psalter. We thank you for dedicating a psalm to the issue of time, but framing it in a godly way, a God-centred way. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God we have but a breath, 70, 80 years, and then we're gone. But Father, we know that there is more to life than just this life. You've given us an immortal soul, and there will be a day of judgment. Unless we have an advocate who will stand up for us on that day of judgment and say, they're mine. I died for them. I shed my blood for them. I care for them. They're my child. They're my friend. Father, spare them. Then we would be lost. Father, will you teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom? Teach us not to be in denial or ignorant of death and just assume it's a long way off. Teach us, Father, to think about our death in the midst of life and to know that you care for us and to settle accounts with you through your Son, Jesus. Will you please establish the work of our hands for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.
0: We're going to close our time together with singing Rock of Ages.
1: Thank you for joining us today. If it's your first time here, please get to know us. We're nice and friendly. We don't bite. Um, Come find someone to say hi to.
0: Please continue hanging out together over tea, coffee, and thinking over what uh, we've heard from Psalm 90. Please stand.